Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest on this episode is Brett Canellan. From the age of 11, Brett was a keen surfer whose whole life and identity revolved around surfing. Then, on an evening in 2016, he was out surfing when he was attacked by a shark. Although you might consider Brett unlucky for being attacked, nearly dying, and losing three quarters of his quad in the process, it was a series of events that fell in Brett's favour on that day which allowed him to survive to tell his story. Following the attack, Brett's prognosis was pretty bleak, but his hard work and determination resulted in him defying the odds to not only be able to walk again, but to eventually get back into the water and do what he loves most, surfing. Since then, he's even run a marathon. However, what might be considered most profound in Brett's story is how the attack changed his mindset and outlook on life and resulted in him striving towards a new purpose-driven life. In this interview, Brett shares his journey from working towards his dream of becoming a professional surfer to the events on the day of the attack and how the attack was just the beginning of his journey to becoming the person that he is today. Brett is so much more than just a shark attack survivor and what defines him as a person is not what happened to him but how he responded to it and what he did next. Hi Brett, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Thanks for um, thanks for reaching out. Thanks for inviting me on. It's um, it's amazing to to finally meet you and yeah, to to have a chat. Yeah, likewise. I don't normally start off my interviews this way, but at the beginning, I wanted to ask you about why you share your story. And part of the reason behind me wanting to ask you that is because I feel like a lot of the time we can kind of pigeonhole people into defining them by something that's happened to them, which may not necessarily have been their choice. So for instance, for you, it was obviously a shark attack and I'm sure you didn't go into the water saying, I want to be attacked by a shark. <laughs> no. But I think it's easy to kind of think of you as the guy that was attacked by a shark when you're actually so much more than that um, as a person and from how you've responded to what happened to you. So can you start off by telling us a bit about why you're here talking to me today and why you actively share your story? Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting sort of thing. Like I, it comes across more naturally as to to why I share my story, but I think part of that is you know the the nature and I suppose the the place that shark attacks hold in a lot of people's minds and and in in culture really in general. So you know sharks are something that a lot of people are interested by. I think apart from you know public speaking and you know, maybe being buried alive. I think shark attacks are like in, in the top three fears that a lot of people have. So it's something that a lot of people want to hear about and, you know, experiencing that is its own thing. But the the journey that I went on after the, the shark attack and everything that I learned is something that not only I learned a lot from, but I realized a lot of other people could learn from as well. And the way I sort of looked at it is I've got, you know, this in quotation marks, cool story of, <laughs> of being attacked by a shark, something that that brings people in where I can share those other parts of my story which are more important. And like you said, not just being defined by, you know, as being the guy that got attacked by a shark, but it is everything that happened after that. So I think almost use it as a, a bit of a, a bait and switch almost in, mm-hmm. in the most positive sense. And that's one of the, the the things that I try and really cover when, when I do speak to people, when I do podcasts or or do anything with my story is I, I want to make sure that I address the attack 
And that's something that came very early on is to not brush that aside because it is an important part of the story. And like I said before, it brings people in, but it is really about what happened afterwards. And that that's one of the big things, you know, as to, to how I share my story, but the why really comes from the purpose. Uh, you and I were speaking just before about how I'm not the most, you know, naturally confident speaker. Um, and, you know, I think that comes from being in school and, like I was that person when they're going around the classroom, you know, everyone's giving their answers. I'm getting sweatier and shakier as, it, as it's coming I was towards exactly me. exactly the same. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible feeling. And, and that was my life for a majority of, you know, my, the, the years leading up to, to the attack. But I suppose the nature of being bitten by a shark it does throw you in the limelight a little bit more. Um, it forces you to be a little bit more comfortable. And I had to make, you know, almost a, a conscious choice that that's something that I wanted to do. And it's not something that I always feel comfortable doing, even before coming on here. Like I still get nervous about sharing my story. And I think that's a good thing. I've been told it's a good thing because it means you you really care. Mm-hmm. But it's something I realize that I, I have to do. Like I have this story as unique as it is and I have to share it. If I kept it all for myself, then it'd be a little bit selfish in in a way. So it's something that I, I really wanted to to make sure that I could share with other people and it's really that purpose of, of why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, and that's what leads me, you know, to share my story in a, a number of different ways, but as, as much as possible. I find it really interesting that you said you have to share your story. You don't have to do anything, mm. but you choose to share your story in order to help other people. That's your choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is a choice, but... I feel like it'd be a waste if I wasn't going to share it. And, you know, as I don't know if it's cliche or, you know, airy fairy to say that things happen for a reason, but mm-hmm. the, the points, you know, in my life that I can look to and say that that should have happened, like the, the shark attack is something that it is a defining moment in my life because so much changed and I learned so much from, from that moment. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I feel like, you know, I have to, is that it did happen to me for a reason. And this is the only logical thing I can, I can think of using it for rather than, you know, the, the alternatives, which is to, you know, not share it at all or to completely brush it under the carpet and not even acknowledge it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the, the best thing to do in that situation is to do the complete opposite and be open about it and share it and, and hope that it can help one person. Like everything I do, it, it really is just the that one person rule like i don't really care if i do you know 100 podcasts 100 interviews and only one person takes something positive (laughs) out of it because that was a situation that i didn't have before i didn't have the platform or the story necessarily to share that could help that one person so having the ability to impact someone's life like that is is an amazing thing that i'm you know overall grateful to have whether you know you can say you're grateful to be attacked by a shark or not is is probably something that a lot of people uh, would argue either side of, but it's definitely changed who I am in the most positive ways. I love hearing that. That's fantastic. So if we can go back now to before the attack. So you were 22, I believe, Mm. when you had the shark attack. Can you take us back to say when you were 20 or 21 and tell us a bit about what your life was like back then and who you were as a person back then? Yeah, my, I mean, even before that, I always say that from the age of 11, which is when I first stepped on a surfboard, up until the shark attack, my whole life was just all in this one direction of surfing. Like, 
from the moment I stepped on a surfboard, that's all I wanted to do. It was a sport that I enjoyed doing that I happened to be pretty good at. And I think a big thing that happens as as a young kid who's surfing is you look at some of the the best surfers in the world who are all in the world tour and that just looks like the dream lifestyle like it's traveling the world surfing competitions it, it looks amazing and that was always my dream the reality that of that isn't you know something that was a definite you know as far as whether it would be achieved or not because there's only 34 people in the world to get to do that oh really but yeah, yeah. Um, on on a, any given year, so it's the top thirty four people on the world tour. So that you know, if if I'm being honest, was always going to be a bit of a stretch. But it's nice to dream. And you know, throughout my life, I knew that even if I didn't make it onto the world tour, I wanted to be in and around surfing. So you know, I always joke and say that everything was going in in the way of surfing, and it actually was because. You know, not only surfing as much as possible and being in the water and getting better and, and competing, but, you know, my first job was as a surf instructor, which, you know, probably makes a bit of sense. It's something you're pretty good at. You share your knowledge with other people. That's important. I'd worked in surf shops. You know, when I finished school, I went and did surfing studies at university. Like when I say surfing was, you know, an important part of my life, it was it was more than important. It was It was everything I cared about. In... A slightly selfish way because surfing is a pretty selfish sport and one thing that's pretty unique about surfing is it is an individual sport but it's one where because waves are finite <laughs> there's only one time that wave goes and, and breaks on that beach it brings out this competitive spirit in definitely me as a surfer and this isn't all surfers but a lot of surfers where you want to be on that best wave and I think that's something that kind of spilled into to other parts of my life. I wasn't overtly a selfish person, but because I cared so much about surfing and that's all I wanted to do, a lot of other parts of my life tended to kind of be pushed away. And I think some people can look at that as dedication and being dedicated to surfing. And that's the way that I definitely viewed it. But there were certainly other parts of my life that I didn't realize were as important as they were until after the attack so you know as far as what i was doing before the attack you know around 20 years old 22 it was it was literally working in surfing being in the water as much as possible um, and the year of the attack actually leading up to do a full round of the world qualifying series which is the kind of the pre-tour before you make the the world tour so if you perform well in that then you can qualify for those top 34 spots so that's kind of where my life was at the time very very much involved in surfing very much chasing this thing that i'd wanted to do for you know the previous 11 years at that time and i was enjoying it like for for how i talk about surfing and and make it sound like a selfish and negative thing i i really enjoyed that part of my life i'm lucky enough to live in kaima just south of sydney and it's an amazing place to to grow up but it's an amazing place to live with you know a lot of great waves a great coastline and you know i was just spending every day either working in the surf shop coaching or in the water and i think that was a, a great you know in hindsight an amazing way to live as well so that's kind of where i was really just focused on those goals of being in and around surfing if you were having a bad day or something challenging happened you were stressed something like that did you use surfing as a way to decompress yeah. and help you? 
Definitely. It was, in fact, it was the only thing that I could do, which is, is tough because surfing, the better I got at it, the less I could actually use it reliably as that sort of coping strategy. It's something that I knew made me feel good, but only was go- when it was going good. If I was having a bad yeah. surf, then it became frustrating. I always kind of liken it to golf, which is something I, I took up in my recovery. And golf is something that it's almost better to suck at <laughs> because the better you get at it, you know, you play a bad shot, which might be a good shot when you suck at it yep. <laughs> and you get frustrated. It's like your, your standards get a little bit higher. <laughs> but yeah, surfing, surfing for me, I mean, just being out in the ocean – is there's something therapeutic just in that it's it's pretty unique in the fact that you know when you go surfing it's not like when you you know go and play tennis or you go and do another sport where you're doing that sport a lot of the time like surfing in reality if you go for a two-hour surf you're only surfing for you know probably four minutes the rest of the time you're paddling or sitting out the back waiting for waves, which is why it can be so therapeutic sitting out there in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Usually you've got your friends there and that's another good thing about surfing is it allows you to use that support or that network of people around you. you know, if you are having a bad day, that you can chat to those people or just in, enjoy the time out there. So surfing art after the attack has definitely become more of that coping strategy for me because I do it for different reasons now and a lot of that is just to enjoy it but it's always been something that i've looked to you know if i've had a bad day or a bad week to to kind of you know even things out a little bit and being such a keen surfer what did you think about sharks back then sharks have always been in the back of my mind as a surfer and i think if you talk to a number of surfers they'd say the same thing you know as as a surfer when you go into the ocean you are entering the home of sharks and you have to be mindful of that and you have to come to terms with that before you actually go into the the ocean even though the odds of being attacked by a shark are very low it is you know if you look at the odds an irrational fear to be scared of sharks but you still need to be aware of the risks and there's certain things that you can do to minimize those risks as well but surfing for me, um, and especially when you bring sharks into the equation, is something that I'd, I'd never been scared of. I'd never, you know, felt that, you know, if I was surfing and it felt sharky or I felt like I was alone out there and, you know, it was getting dark that I needed to paddle in, um, which is kind of a, a bit of a, a brazen way to think about it and something that's definitely changed now, I think understandably. <laughs> but... Yeah, as, as a surfer, I've always been fascinated by sharks. I've always loved sharks and have always, you know, acknowledged that that's their home. You know, one thing a lot of people say is that you can start being concerned about sharks when they start walking down the main street, and I haven't <laughs> seen that yet. So, <laughs> I think the way the media portrays them is a big yeah. part of this. Like, I think I was reading it's like one in 3.7 million, the chance of being attacked or killed by a shark but I think because every time it does happen, it's like all over the media. It's mm. It seems maybe like it's a bit more than that and yeah. that increases the fear. Would yeah. that be correct? It's 100% correct. Like I said <laughs> earlier on, like being attacked by a shark is, is definitely in a lot of people's top fears. Mm. I wouldn't say it's always in, in my list of, of top fears, but I know a lot of people that would say that sharks are probably at the top of their list of things to be to be afraid of and because of that the way that the media does portray them is often well 
almost always in a negative light. And it's funny because, you know, recently I've actually been talking to a few different publishers because I'm working on my, my own documentary um, and, you know, talking about doing stories. And a lot of them are very, very keen to pick up stories because they're like, yeah, if there's shark in the title, it gets clicks. Oh, because okay. a lot of people are just attracted to that. And I say, you know, a big thing that I try and focus on is, well, I don't want things to be painted in a negative light. I yeah. want it to be to be positive. And I think that's something that you do see about any story that I have some sort of say in, in what comes through. It does have more of a positive spin on it because a, a lot of the times – you know, the, the fear that goes into those stories and articles is something that, you know, it, it always adds to that negative stigma that does surround sharks and, and how people perceive them. I would say for a lot of people that one of the most amazing things that you can do is go f- swimming with sharks because it lets you appreciate how amazing they are. Whether you do that in a cage or if you do it in, in a safe environment, <laughs> um, whatever you feel safest doing or you feel the most confident doing, I, I would suggest for anyone to go and view them up close because they're, they are incredible creatures. And I think when you look at it through a different lens, you can start to see that that shark narrative that the media tells is there's something a little bit off about it. <laughs> I think it's incredible that you're saying that. And I've heard a couple of other I'm sure there's more than a couple of other um, shark attack survivors who have actually gone into being shark conservationists. Mm. And I feel like you and them, the people that have actually been attacked by them should almost be the ones that are are fearful, but you've gone the other way and haven't done that. So, yeah, I think it's incredible to hear that. But we will get into that day. So you're 22 years old. It's the 30th of March, 2016. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how that day went for you? Yeah, I mean, I always say that that day is just like a regular day, except for the fact that it kind of wasn't. Like it it was a regular day in the way that it felt. When I look back, and I think if you view anything through hindsight, you can kind of pick out signs that it's not a regular day. Um, For me, the, you know, that that sign was the fact that the shop that I was managing, the surf shop got broken into that morning. So I actually woke up at 2 a.m. to a phone call from my boss um, saying the shop had been broken into and you know, there's not much I could do then, but to go up and, um, you know, deal with police, clean it up and, and stuff when, when I could. So apart from that regular day, um, it's <laughs> not a regular day. <laughs> it's, it's not a regular day, but you know, on any other given day that, that could happen. Yeah. Um, you know, shop, shop could get broken into whatever it is, but I think the, the way that that impacted my day later on is the fact that I had dealt with all that stuff meant that I wanted to go for a surf to, to kind of even me out like we were saying before surfing something that i would do if i did have a bad day so that afternoon when i finished work when i'd done you know cleaning all the glass when i when i'd finished <laughs> doing all of that stuff i decided that i was just going to go for a surf out bombo beach which is the beach where i grew up surfing i called my my good friend joel uh, and said that i was going to go out there um joel's someone that he's He's a really good, really, really good friend of mine. I like to, to preface all the conversations <laughs> with this. He's a, a really good guy. Um, but Joel's the, the type of person that uh, if if you do call him to, to go and do something and throughout my life he's, you know, surfed with me, but a majority of the time he's come and filmed me or taken photos. So he spent a lot of time at the beach with me, but there's so many times where I've called him to do that and he'll either show up late or just not show up at all. Um, what does Joel think about every time you say this? <laughs> does he listen to your your conversations and say, why does he always paint me like that? Or does he yeah. go, yeah, yeah, that's me? 
he he knows uh, all, all of our all of our friends have uh, it's always been the the running joke like he <laughs> if you call him to go for a surf he'll be like yeah i'm just putting a load of washing on and we we swear he just sits there and watches the washing go around <laughs> for the entire cycle and then he'll hang it out and then come rather than put it on go do what he needs to do and then hang it out later so okay. yep. he's he's aware of it it's it's been <laughs> it's been a major part of his his life <laughs> um he just runs on his on his own clock and and he knows that so um, but you know, this is the person I, I trusted to, to call that day. And I just went out and, and surfed by myself. There was some people surfing right up in the, the northern end of the beach because I'd, I'd had the day I had. I didn't necessarily feel like talking to, to everyone and socializing. Generally speaking, I like to sit by myself. So I found a little wave probably about 300 meters down the beach from where everyone was. Um, and I was just surfing by myself. When Joel came down to the beach, he ended up paddling out where I was because he knew that person surfing by himself was probably me because that's <laughs> just what I'm usually like. And we just shared some waves with each other for about 45 minutes. Um, we'd just been surfing. You know, I was telling him about the break-in and, and all of that stuff. And, you know, this is the the good thing about surfing. You can you can go enjoy a few good waves. The waves were pretty fun that afternoon. I was talking to Joel, having a bit of a debrief. And, you know, after about 45 minutes, I was starting to feel a lot better. You know, I was just enjoying the waves then. I'd kind of gotten over the, the bad day that I'd had. Joel had actually caught a really good wave and he was probably about 100 meters further down the beach than what I was. And I was kind of just sitting out the back, reflecting on on the day, thinking about, you know, everything that I've been through and actually saying to myself, you know, for, for how bad it's been, at least I've been able to come for a surf. I feel a lot better now than what I did. Like this was an actual thought that I had. And as I was having that thought, that's when, you know, my my life changed forever. I got hit from my right side by what felt like a bus or something significant like that. Bus is probably the best describer I've found for it at the moment, even though I haven't been hit by a bus and I probably can't, I'm not in a position to say (laughs) that's what that feels like. Um, But I I got thrown off my board, completely off it. Um, And I landed in the water and before I could even look around and figure out what had happened i looked down there's a a shark grabbing my left leg and for me this moment is is kind of the the moment that slowed down to the point of stopping um you know if you i'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who've been through you know major incidents like this this is that moment where time stood still where five seconds feels like five minutes and in looking into this a little bit more i found out why this is and it's because of your you know your fight flight or freeze response um, because you've had something su- significant like that happen to you, your body enters freeze straight away. And that's kind of like an information gathering response. So freeze is never a, a final option. It's just fight or flight on hold as you're gathering information, figuring out what's the best course of action to take. And that's why time really slows down and you can take in those really fine details, whether it actually slows down in the moment or not is kind of hard to recall, but the fact that you can take in so many small things from that moment makes it feel like it's just this frozen moment in time. And for me, the three sort of things that I can really remember from that moment are the feel of the shark's skin as I was, you know, trying to trying to push it away. The fact that there was no noise, even though I found out later uh, and I know that I was shouting for help. And the last one, and probably the thing that leaves the biggest image in my mind is the look in the shark's eyes, which was one of no emotion. 
Um, it's kind of just two black dots staring back at you. And that image is one of an animal which is, you know, really, really good at what it does in the most unfortunate way for me in that moment. But when I look at that image, I can appreciate how good sharks are at what they do, which is, you know, finding things to to kill so they can survive. There's a reason they've been around for thousands of years. It's because of that. And in a weird way, I do have a lot of respect for sharks with that image. And from my entire experience, something we just spoke about before, like beforehand, I always was interested by sharks and fascinated by them. But experiencing firsthand how good they are at what they do is something that has only added to that respect and and that view that I have of them. As I'm, I suppose, gathering all this information, I need to make a decision. I'm sure a lot of people listening are probably screaming into their, you know, what their phone or their their, their earphones to, why don't you punch the shark? You know, everyone knows to punch the shark, right? <laughs> um, I tried it; it didn't work. Um, having the presence of mind to actually try and do that is one thing, but when you realize that you can't punch through water, it just doesn't penetrate with any sort of force and you realize it's it's pretty much useless is is a very it's a it's a feeling that leaves you very hopeless in a way because you think, well, what do I do now? And for me, I really only had one one other option, which is a mistake in hindsight, but the only thing I could have done, uh, which is to pull away from the shark. Sounds pretty logical to get away from something that's holding on to you. Um, but sharks don't let go when you pull away from you and, you know, apologize and swim off. <laughs> their, their teeth are so sharp that when you pull away from a shark that's holding onto your leg, and I don't know how many other people can resonate with, <laughs> with this, <laughs> um, but they hold on and it separates that chunk of flesh from, from your leg. Like we're, we're so fragile in comparison to, to sharks and, and what they're doing in that moment. When you say, though, that it was a mistake that you pulled away, what mm. else could you have done? Just let it throw you around? Like- the, that's, that's what a lot of, you know, if you talk to people that swim with sharks, they say if you do get bitten, it's to kind of hold it in its mouth, but then it's up to whatever the shark does next. I didn't know if it was going to try and pull me underwater. I didn't know yeah. what it was going to do. So kind of in a split decision, that's the only thing that I could think of doing. Like there's there's not many instances I can think where you can remain calm enough to be like, I'm going to stay yeah. being bitten by this shark. And, you know, for me, my natural instinct was to, to pull away. So, you know, in hindsight, a mistake, but I, you know, I even feel like knowing everything I do now, if I was to get bitten today, I'd still probably do the same thing because yeah, it's just how your body's going to respond. Mm-hmm. And it's like when you... I don't know, you have an insect or a spider crawl across you know, the, the table. like, And if it happens time and time again, you're not going to leave your hand there. You, you're going to have that same response every time. Yeah. So I suppose the good thing about pulling away from it and you know losing that chunk of my leg, it meant that I could try and get away from it. Um, I had a window, you know, a small window of opportunity where I could try and flee for my life, which is swimming towards the shore. Um, I'd only swam about 10 or 15 metres in just putting my head down, focusing on getting to the sand when I had a thought kind of come over me, which is I wonder if the shark's going to come back a second time. And it's a good thing that I had that thought because it allowed me to look around just in time to see it coming back. I only had you know a split second to react and all I could do was put my hands out to try and stop the shark. Uh, my right hand landed on its nose, 
which was lucky, pretty good aim, I think, um, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. My left hand wasn't so accurate and actually fell into its mouth, but I was able to pull it out just in time before it bit down. Um, I lost some skin on the way, but you know, I always say that's insignificant. It's just cool scars, that one. <laughs> yeah, you kept your hand. Yeah, that's it. And the shark just pushed me through the water for the next you know, 10 meters or so with, again, immense power that just adds to that respect that I have. And here I am again, kind of in a, a position where I need to do something. Um, and I only really have one other option. Uh, I see a wave approaching and I kind of say, the only thing I can do here is when the wave hits us to try and push the shark to one side and hope that we get tumbled around enough in the whitewash that I get pushed further in and it kind of separates us a little bit more. And luckily that wave had a lot of power. It tumbled me around a lot underwater and by the time I actually surfaced, I was standing up and the water was only about waist deep. This time when I look up, I see a much better sight, uh, which is not the shark coming back a third time. Uh, it's actually Joel paddling towards me as fast as, as he can. So you know, like I've said many times, for, for what I do say about him beforehand, uh, he's, he's definitely the most reliable person to paddle towards that danger in that moment. Um, I don't know how I would react in that situation. If Joel was to paddle the other way and go towards the beach, I can definitely see why he would do that. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why people call that bravery, and uh, it's because not everyone would make the choice to to go into that situation. But I was lucky that he did. He got to me, put me on his board, and took me back to the beach. Where by the time we got to the sand, I was so exhausted, so out of energy, I couldn't even move my arms. Um, Joel had to put me on his board because I lost mine in that initial impact when I got hit. Um, the shark's tooth actually cut through my leg rope. And I didn't see my board, you know, before I got back to the beach. So Joel had to put me on his board. And yeah, by the time we got back to the beach, I was just so exhausted. Um, couldn't paddle, couldn't move my arms. And Joel had to, to drag me up on the sand. Um, and then he kind of ran off to get some help. And those moments laying in, you know, the shore break by myself, trying to recap what had happened was a really interesting moment. Like I, I knew something serious had happened. Like I obviously knew it was a shark attack, but I made a decision very early on that I didn't want to look down at my leg because I didn't want to go into shock and I didn't want to you know, lose more blood than what I already had. This is really interesting. You're the second person that I've spoken to that said this. Yeah. I spoke to, I don't know if anyone else has listened to, the episode with Michelle Eric Yellow who became a Paralympian. She was hit by an out-of-control car that amputated her leg completely and didn't look down, didn't know her leg had been amputated for quite some time. Mm. I can't imagine ever doing that myself. <laughs> like, how do you have the willpower to actually not look at and see what has happened? I, For me, I always put it down to the fact that I watched Bethany Hamilton's movie, Soul Surfer, um, which I just, something that always stuck out to me through that was that she was able to not look down at her arm when she was bitten by a shark. And I'm not sure why I had the presence of mind to do that, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. And it wasn't just in that moment. I didn't look at my, at my leg until about four weeks after the attack. Oh, wow. Because I didn't want to know. I, I didn't want to, as far as I was concerned, everything that was happening down there was out of my control. So there was no point worrying about it. That's an incredible mindset to have. It wasn't an easy thing to do. Um, there's always the the temptation to look. And the first time I did say it, it was confronting. But it's something that I felt like it would 
it would only benefit me if I could kind of focus on, you know, what I could do in those moments and nothing I could do in those moments had anything to do with my leg. So as I'm laying in the shore break, I'm sort of not looking down at my leg, thinking this is serious. I had a lot of pain in my stomach and I was sort of wondering if I'd got bitten there as well. I kind of lost track at that point with, you know, what happened and knowing how serious it was, I was kind of being like, okay, well, what's, what's next? Like I, I'm kind of just laying here and have the thought, which is kind of, I suppose, a, a bit of an inevitable thought, but something that's really, really profound. And it's kind of that thought where you get to a, a point and you ask yourself, you know, is this my time? Like, is this what it feels like to die? And for me, that was a really significant moment. A, because it's a unique thing just to be in that situation. But it was a weird situation because it didn't feel right. And I'd asked myself that question and the answer that I had for myself was that no, it, it didn't feel right. And I think it's a good thing that I told myself that because, again, it allowed me just to focus on what I could do in that moment, which for me right then and there was essentially just to breathe and, and kind of stay present. There was nothing else I could I could do. And at that point, Joel had got to the help that was on the beach. Um, and this is kind of where my, my luck started to change because not only was Joel there that afternoon, but he had actually brought his partner Aggie down as well. Um, and Aggie's an intensive care nurse. So one of the first people to know about the attack um, and to kind of direct a lot of the first aid was more than qualified to do so. Mm-hmm. Along with Aggie, there was uh, another nurse that was walking along the beach that came and, and helped everyone apply first aid. So when I talk about being able to survive that afternoon, there was a lot, a lot of luck. Like with all, all the decisions that Joel made to get me back to the beach, with all the decisions they made collectively as far as the tourniquets and the first aid they applied, they, they made all the right choices, but there's always an element of luck involved. And I can definitely look back on that afternoon and, and be grateful but acknowledge the luck that I was able to have that not only you know kept me alive but set me up to be able to keep my leg and things like that further down the track, which those things that I'm, I'm very grateful for now. But those guys uh, were able to stabilize me on the beach, apply the tourniquets and and get um, all the first aid done, um, call the ambulances. And I was eventually airlifted from the beach there and taken to St. George Hospital in, in Sydney, which is kind of where, you know, the, the attack finishes and, you know, the, the rest of the story starts, I suppose. So can you just tell us, you mentioned that you had stomach pain. Can you mm. tell us what that was? Yeah, so I, like I said, uh, I thought I'd been bitten there because it was painful. I'd even gotten them to take my wetsuit down and, and see if I had any puncture wounds or any bites there, and they said there was nothing. So I, I had no idea what it was at the time. Um, I found out later on that those stomach pains are actually my organs starting to shut down. Uh, because I'd lost so much blood, because you know I was in shock, my my body had basically started to shut down. So even though I had told myself that this didn't feel right to die, I was actually very very close to death. I didn't know it at the time, but it was really you know a, a matter of of millimeters. Not only in in the wound itself, but you know in well, I suppose I could say in milliliters with, with the amount of blood that was lost. <laughs> 
but yeah, that that's what those those pains were in my stomach. So very very close to not even making it off the beach, which is you know something again, a lot of luck comes into that as far as the timing, getting the blood that I needed, um, the fact that it was on the helicopter that came and got me because the first helicopter they sent, which they sent to the wrong beach. Um, they sent in the wrong direction. It didn't have blood on it. So, again, oh, wow. just an- another slice of luck that, you know, I look at and, and have no idea why these things fell my yeah. way, but but they did. This give, gives me goosebumps because obviously you were very unlucky mm. to be attacked by a shark. Like we said before, it's not common at all. The chances of that are very slim. But all the things that went your way in order for you to be here today is incredible. Yeah. And also where the shark bit you wasn't it yeah yeah definitely like even you know when when they did the analysis of where the bite was um first of all the fact that it missed my femoral artery by millimeters it's like two millimeters in between where the bite finished where my femoral artery is which if if it hit that i wouldn't have made it to the beach mm-hmm. even you know for recovery further down the track the the muscle that was left there you know i ended up losing three quarters of my quad but the one quarter that's that's left is able to control my knee, which meant that I could eventually use that to be able to walk, which is super, super lucky. So, yeah, even down to where the shark bit me and how much muscle I lost, even though I did lose muscle, I kept the right parts of it. So it wasn't your time at all? Doesn't doesn't sound like it. Do you believe in fate? I If you asked me before that, I would have said no. But, you know, like I said before, like I, with the whole you know idea that things happen for a reason or fate i i feel like you know it's hard for me not to believe that based on my experience mm. which is a strange thing to say and you know it could have happened to anyone you know and and that's the thing it didn't even have to be a shark attack mm-hmm. you know I, I feel like one thing that defines us as as people is how we overcome these challenges and everyone's challenge is going to be different but I feel like going through those challenges and overcoming them is what gives us meaning and purpose and, and direction in life. And a lot of the times it's it's hard to find that without going through something significant or having those setbacks. And I think that's something that's definitely, you know, when you look at fate, it sounds almost morbid to say that because people will probably have something bad happen to them in life, but it will be a good thing in a way. Yeah. And it's what you do with it, which exactly. is what happened with you. Yeah. So you're airlifted to hospital and they did an incredible surgery Mm. on you. I think it's amazing what surgeons can do, one, but also what the body can do to then adapt. Mm. Can you explain the surgery that they did on your quad, on your leg? So obviously losing three quarters of your quad, even though I kept the right parts of it, it's still a significant muscle to lose. Because there was so much exposed bone, uh, their first priority was just trying to save the legs. So they have to cover that bone up um, so it won't decay and, and die. So they ended up doing an operation which they'd only done, I think, only once ever before, which they took my left lat muscle from my back and implanted that into my, my leg where the quad used to sit. That essentially covered the bone. They connect a blood supply and a nerve through that. The blood supply is just to keep the muscle alive, the nerve they say, you know, is going to grow very slowly over time. It may work at some stage, but the main purpose of that operation was just to save the leg. Amputation was a, a real option for 
definitely for the first couple of days, you know, especially when you look at the risk of, of infection and everything that could have gone wrong. I had two surgeries just to clean all the sand out of it. You know, <laughs> So <laughs> the fact that they were trying to, first of all, just avoid infection, but trying to save the leg was kind of the primary um, idea of that. So after they put the muscle in, they took skin from the back of my leg, uh, my calf, and also my hip. And that basically just acts as, you know, the, the bandage on top that binds everything together. And that's kind of what they did. Again, transplanting a, a muscle which is from your back into your leg is a very interesting thing to do. You know, despite my dad's best efforts to donate his own quad, um, <laughs> you you can't get an exact muscle replacement. So all they can do is take the best alternative. So it has to be from your own body. It has to be from your own body. Oh, okay. And the lat muscle is something that it's, you know, as far as size goes, it's the only thing that would, would match that. But the, the issue is they don't often like to take the lat muscle from – uh, people who are either swimmers, surfers, or rock climbers because you need that lat muscle for the pulling motion, so for paddling and surfing. But I suppose the the issues involved in maybe struggling with paddling were outweighed by the fact that they wanted to save the legs. So it's, um, it is incredible the surgery that they were able to do. And again, how the body adapts after that is, you know, its own story. But as a result of that surgery... I suppose the the next steps is trying to figure out, you know, what the the short and long term implications are. Um, obviously, did they know? Did they give you any guidelines, or if this this has only been done once before, mm. was it just, oh, we have to wait and see? There, yeah, there, there was the element of we just have to wait and see, but the nature of you know when you have these conversations with medical staff, they they tend to give you the worst case scenario, mm. which you know a lot of people probably know and i can see why they do that but it's hard as a patient to hear some of the things that they tell you um so for me you know they're like okay we've done our best to save the leg this is this is good and i'm like okay great (laughs) but then they're like okay we're gonna have a you know a lengthy stay in hospital where we're gonna monitor make sure that the the graft and everything takes you know you're you're not good enough to get up on your feet and, and just go home so we'll spend you know a little while in hospital but after that is sort of where the real challenges are going to arise. Quality of life, they were sort of saying, like, obviously we want to be looking at getting you up and, and moving around before you can even go home. And they're like, walking itself is going to be, you know, a challenge. The fact that you've lost so much muscle from your leg, that there's been such a trauma there is going to make it hard for you to walk again. They're like, we're going to focus on just getting you, you know, up on on crutches or, you know, in a wheelchair before you can go home. I said, because of the challenges you're going to have walking, that being active or living an active lifestyle is going to be another massive challenge. You know, obviously, because they've replaced the biggest muscle in the body with something that doesn't compare in size, they weren't sure how that was going to react. And, you know, they suspected that even if I was able to walk, that doing something more high performance than that, than like running was going to be a massive challenge. And then the, the last thing that they told me, which they you know, wanted to be a bit more specific and you know, I appreciated them for doing this in a way, but it's definitely the thing that, that kind of impacted me the most over the next couple of weeks and, and months. Um, you know, they're talking about surfing in particular and they said, you know, if we're talking about walking is going to be a challenge and running's, you know, even, even harder that surfing's, probably not going to happen ever again 
And for me, that was the thing that kind of, it sent me in a downward spiral. You know, it would be a stretch to say it broke me because there was still so much unknown. But being told that, you know, and I always say for for someone that doesn't surf, being told that you can never surf again probably means nothing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But for me, as I said earlier, surfing was everything I had. I wasn't just, you know, a, a guy that liked surfing. Like surfing was everything that, that I was and everything that I wanted to be. And being told that I couldn't do that again, it was it was more than just the loss of the sport. It was the loss of, you know, my purpose and, and my identity as, as a person, as a surfer. And that was hard to come, come to grips with. Like I said, there was that element of unknown, but... I really had to early on tell myself that I needed to almost forget about surfing because I had way bigger challenges to worry about, like trying to walk again. You said before that surfing was your coping mechanism. Mm. How did you cope through this time? What did you do to help yourself? Not not very well at the start. For me, I think it's important to say like I – up until you know the point of that shark attack, I'd never really been through anything significant in in my life before. Like I'd had you know bad days and bad weeks, we all do, but I'd never had a major setback where I'd needed to display resilience before. And for a lot of people, resilience comes from a place of experience. So you know what works for you. You you learn what it's like to persevere and and what it's like to get through those tough times. But because I was in a situation where I didn't know how to do that i was kind of a bit stuck and the only thing that i would you know usually try and do which is surfing i've been told that i can never do again so i felt very stuck and i felt very alone for a a long time i felt especially in the first couple weeks in hospital like you you do take on that victim mentality that that poor me um you know the the why me why is this happened to me because that's it's human nature you know sometimes things happen in life that are unlucky sometimes things happen that are unfair but for me, I needed a bit of a perspective change before I could look at that in a different way. Like I always split my recovery into kind of two sections. There's the physical recovery and getting back to the point of being able to walk and get get back in the water. But there's also the mental recovery. And I needed to focus on that first before I could even look at my physical recovery. I always say one of the biggest things that helped me throughout that time in hospital was the support that I had. Not only just you know, the fact that I had a constant stream of visitors, but, you know, the most emotional moment in my life to this day is the the moment I got my phone, um, which was, you know, a couple of days into to hospital. But just seeing, you know, I thought it would be, you know, my friends and family sending me messages saying like, you know, hope you get well soon it was literally thousands of messages it took me oh, wow. it took me so long to just get back to them all and, and reply and say thanks and it's something that you often don't realize until you know you need that support the most but we we do all have people out there that, that care about us and that was a big thing for me early on but another massive supporter for me throughout that whole time was was my family and, and in particular my dad because he's someone who you know he's he's worked in fire and rescue and he's always had the attitude of you know being part of a family and a team just through his work and you know if someone's feeling down that you you help pick him back up and he saw that obviously I was going through a tough time and and sat me down to actually talk about that and you know he went just to talk about 
you know, how I was going, but also allowed me to view things through the lens of like my whole family. And he pointed out, you know, how my sisters were going. Um, they, they were both living away at the time and getting back just to, to see me in hospital was one thing, but dealing with the media and all of that was, mm-hmm. was another beast. My mom, she was, you know, I think she picked up like half a medical degree when she was in hospital. <laughs> she did so much research. She was talking to doctors. That's a lot of stress on her. And then for my dad, you know, he was telling me about how it was difficult on him. And in particular, when I was back on the beach because mum and dad only live about five minutes away, they were able to get down there before I was airlifted. And my dad was telling me his own experience about how in you know his role, he's used to being someone that can rock up to those situations and jump in and provide help and support. And he actually rocked up and was being physically held back, like not being able to help out. And it's so against everything that he's done in life. And that was, you know, caught, that's his own struggle throughout that. And I think when he allowed me to view my whole experience through those different lenses, it got me to realize that I wasn't as alone as what I thought I was. Mm-hmm. Like, it's easy to say that this shark attack happened to me, the recovery's on me. It's a very personal thing, but I didn't realize up until that point that there were other people that were going through it with me. Yeah. And another thing on top of that was just seeing my dad, who's, you know, a role model of mine, someone that I look up to, like he's, he's my, my hero, seeing him be open and, and vulnerable in the way that he shared his own story is something that I, I hadn't experienced before from not necessarily from my dad, but from, you know, a male figure like that. And it allowed me to realize that it is okay to talk about these things and it is okay to be open and, and to share how I was going. That was a really big turning point, not only just being a little bit more open about myself, but when I was able to view things through that broader lens, I realized that I had a recovery ahead of myself and that I wanted to do it for those people that were around me, whether it was, you know, my, my friends and my family that were there in hospital every single day, or even for every single person that had sent me a message, you know, wishing me well, I wanted the recovery to be for those people. And that was kind of my purpose as I, I tracked through through my recovery, which is something that took time. Like it's, I always say like, I I see people now and it's you know, nearly six years on and people will be like, oh, how's your leg? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's going really well. And I, I acknowledge for people like that, they probably see the person I was at the start and then what I'm doing now, which is, you know, surfing and being in the water and being active again. And it probably looks like a linear line. But the recovery, it's so many ups and downs, so many, you know, two steps back, you know, one step forward type of thing where you don't often see the day-to-day when you are looking at it from the outside. And one big thing that I learned is that you are going to have setbacks and you are going to have these days that feel terrible. But for me, it was mostly about trying to focus on, you know, there are a couple of things that helped me. First of all, it was trying to, again, use that support that I had around me that I was lucky to to have to kind of bounce off and, you know, keep talking. Second thing was I needed other things to fill the gap that surfing had left as, you know, a coping mechanism because I didn't have that and I needed to start with small things and kind of build from there. And then the third and probably, you know, the, the most simple thing that made the biggest difference is learning that I didn't have to make these massive leaps and advances every single day. All I had to do was just show to myself that I was doing, you know, at least one thing that was improving my situation from yesterday. You know, it didn't have to be 
you know, going and doing these, I always use like the, you know, the, the being able to walk thing as, as an example. Like it's not that I got up and was able to walk three laps of the entire hospital. Like it, it was slow steps. And there were days when, you know, I was very sore and I didn't feel like getting up and I didn't necessarily need to go for a walk around the entire ward. It was just saying, okay, I'm going to get up, spend a little bit of time on my feet and then, and then rest and kind of work with myself to get through that. But feeling like I was doing something, it's just putting those steps in motion. So you're moving in the right direction. Um, and that was a big thing as far as my mindset goes that kind of helped me be a bit more proactive and it put things in, in my control, uh, for the most part. It was, it was really the first thing that I realized was, was actually in my control where I could do something tangible. And that was a really important sort of step and something really important that I learned throughout my journey. I think that with that as well, you can go two ways. You can go, well, I can't get up and do a whole lap, so it's too hard. I'm just going to lie here mm. and do nothing. Or I'm going to persist every day and do what I can and hope that that's going to improve over time. And often it does, even if it's so tiny that you can't tell in the moment. When you look back and you go, wow, I couldn't even stand up and now I can do a lap. Mm. You know, To other people, it might seem like such a small thing, but it is incredible what you can do. It's like that book, 10% Better. Mm. It compounds over time yeah. and it's incredible what you can actually do. But you need to have that mindset to keep doing it and not give up yeah i think that's a huge thing definitely one one thing that i i kind of learned is that as humans it's very easy to be like result or goal focused and we all we need goals because we need direction but the idea that you're doing a little bit every day it it kind of takes the significance out of whether you achieve that goal or not because whether you do it or not, you know, for, for me, I was trying to achieve goals that I'd been told I, I probably wouldn't be able to do. So there was a real, definitely a, a real possibility that I was going to fail. And I said to myself, rather than, you know, work really hard to these goals and if I fail, be very disappointed, I want to look back and say that if I did something every single day to help me get to that point, then I can be proud of the effort that I've put in. Like a lot of people focus on, you know the the idea of you know the process and i think that's something that in popular culture like everyone's you know trust the process and all of this like the process is kind of the framework that helps you work towards the goals but it's really about the mindset of saying okay i'm just going to do something every single day and i want to be proud of you know the 99 percent of the journey rather than the one percent which is the the outcome and even if you wake up one day and you can't do it, not to go, oh, I can't do it today mm. and then just give up and what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Get up the next day and you try again. Definitely. Yeah. I guess for everyone it's different. Yeah. So you had your mental health side of things and then you've obviously got your physical recovery as well. You've done some extraordinary things that you were told you would never do again. So you can now walk. You've gone back to surfing. Mm -hmm. Speak to us about the physio. Yeah. <laughs> I know the physio was a big part of your journey and getting back surfing again. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, getting back to surfing was something that I hadn't actually realized as a proper goal until I left hospital. You know, when I was in hospital, it was mostly about, okay, what can we do to make sure that you can basically get around the home and, you know, exist? 
So it was about like, okay, we need to get you to go to the bathroom. We need to make sure that you can, you know, get to the kitchen and things like that. So when I left hospital, I was, I was on crutches. Um, I was upright. I was moving. I wasn't walking properly though. But when I went and saw my physiotherapist for the first time, this is where we started talking about goals and goals were really important for me because it didn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't like make or break because the way that uh, my physiotherapist Scott framed it, he's, you know, he said a lot of people often fail, you know, not by aiming too high and missing and, you know, the, the whole failure side of things that a lot of people think is, you know, the, the be all and end all. He said a lot of people fail by aiming too low and hitting those goals. And he said, you've been told that, you know, if you walk again, it'll be a miracle. He said, but what if we can do more than that? And he said, when we look at setting goals, we want to have something that has something like a, it's a practical impact to your life. So the first two goals that we set were, were based around quality of life. So it was just getting back in the car so I could drive again and regain my independence. Uh, and it was getting back to work so I could regain my livelihood. And to be able to do those, to get back in the car, I needed to bend my knee enough. To get back to work, I needed to be on my feet all day. But then he said, let's put surfing up there. Like, what have, what have you got to lose like to, to go for surfing? Obviously, if we can get you back to work, it means you'll be walking again. But we don't want that to be the end. Like, when do you consider yourself fully recovered? Because even today, I don't consider myself fully recovered like it's it's always an ongoing process and i feel like although the gains get smaller and smaller i can continue to to push myself and having that idea that you know the goals kind of set something that i was working towards but it was going to allow me to take a you know it kind of just gave me that reason for going to physio every day and, you know, it's not always easy as, as we were just saying before, like some days you, you definitely don't feel like doing that. But as I was able to start accomplishing things, I gained a little bit of momentum and, and kind of said, okay, now, I, now I can walk, like, what can I do? And he's like, let's go let's strip it straight back to the basics and teach you how to run properly again. Something I'd never done before. Like we went through technique of how to run. And even though I wasn't running at that time, we were just getting the body me- mechanics sorted and it was something that really excited me. And because I was really invested in trying to achieve these, these goals, I was really excited to go to physio every single day. And yeah, sure. I'd have some days like, I mean, the running is a very good example. Like I definitely didn't run quick the first time I was, mm-hmm. I was up and running. Um, you know, some people could, could consider that, you know, failing because it's not what you were before, but I was just really excited by the fact that I was improving. Like I almost had to set aside the person I was before and start again and say, well, is it better than yesterday? And when I looked at it in, in that way, it allowed me to, to focus on the recovery in a, in a very different way. And those things kind of just gained momentum to the point where surfing started becoming a real option. It wasn't something that, you know, for, for me, I had necessarily anticipated, but, you know, when Scott told me you should, you know, go and try and have your first surf back, I was definitely surprised. Like I, it, it took me by surprise because it happened so much sooner than what I thought, because I thought I was meant to be in a physical shape that I was to surf the way I did before. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of, you know, when, when he did tell me I could get back in the water, there were a lot of, you know, feelings of, of doubt of, you know, if I can't stand up or if I can't be the surfer, I am, 
you know, before, because that was something I really, really cared about before. Like walking and doing those sort of things we can take for granted, but surfing was something I really, really cared about. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of start to look at it in a way of being like, okay, I need to put my expectations of what type of surfer I was before to the side. I need to act as if I'm really starting surfing again. Like I know how to do it in my head, but I need to say my body is at day one of surfing. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the the way that I took it. Like the first surf I had back, I just stood up and went straight on a wave. I was on a longboard. I physically couldn't have done any more than that. But that was day one of surfing. And from there, it was kind of the the, the little improvements. And it, again, it didn't happen overnight. It was about getting the, the board I was riding for a longboard to something that was a little bit shorter and then something I could start to maneuver a little bit more. And it was kind of these little steps along the way that got me to the point where eventually I was riding a normal surfboard and as i kept going through that you know my goals developed a little bit as well it went from you know surfing which i'd achieved to you know i really wanted to get barreled which is you know as a surfer one of the best feelings you, that you can have and then it was something that was more like competing but then I, I found myself getting to a point where i was aiming to achieve the same goals that i was before the attack and i was kind of looking at it and, and had to take a step back and saying, am I going to end up being the same person that I was before? And I had to do, you know, sort of a, a real assessment on where I wanted to end up. And that's kind of where I, I took that broader view and, and looked at my experience as a whole and said, you know, do I want to go through all of this and just become the person I was before, you know, essentially trying to make the world tour, whatever it is. Or do I want to use my experience and and kind of go about life a little bit differently? And that for me was a, a really pivotal moment where I shifted my focus completely. Even though I still surf, I'm very grateful to surf and I do it a lot and still enjoy competing from time to time. That's not my number one focus. I started shifting my focus from that to using my story and what I'd learned along the way to help others. And I think that was a, a really important thing where Again, we were talking earlier about, you know, when your story's done. Like, I feel like the story has an end date if I get to the point where I was at before. And then it's just like Very life life resumes almost as as normal, except for the fact that I got attacked by a shark a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now it's kind of like I'm I'm writing these new pages in the book. The the way I always explain it is kind of like climbing mountains. Like my whole life I was climbing this mountain of becoming a professional surfer. When I was bitten by the shark, I fell all the way to the bottom of that mountain. And I tried to climb back up that mountain. As I got close to where I was before, I actually had this perspective of, of looking around because I was always focused on like the peak of the mountain. You don't look around. Yeah. And I started looking around and realizing there's these other mountains out here in this mountain range. And some of them are bigger. Some of them are, are more interesting. And that's what kind of made me realize that I should go back down to the bottom of that mountain and climb something different because you never know what's at the top. So if I were to say, you explain to us who you were and what your life was like before the attack, if I was to ask the same question about you now, what would you say? It's a funny thing. Like I, overall, I say I, I live a life that's a lot more full of purpose now. Not that I didn't have purpose in chasing what I was before, but I talked about how selfish surfing can be. I think I live in a way now that's a lot less selfish in, in what I do and why I do it. You know, the the fact that I've got this 
amazing story that I can share that can help people is something that I didn't have before. And I think overall, like I, I'm just filled with a lot more gratitude and I find my happiness from, from different things. Before the attack, if I was to go on holidays, I would only go somewhere with a coastline, somewhere with a wave mm-hmm. where I could go surfing. Like that's just how I was as a person. The first trip I went on after the attack was to my sister's wedding, which um, she was married in France in the south there. And it was in the mountains. So not somewhere I would typically go, but because I wasn't thinking about surfing, I was able to enjoy the culture and the place there. And I was like, there's so many incredible places. If I'm just (laughs) restricting myself to the coastline, think of how much of the world I'm missing out on. And it just allows me to look at the world, I think, with a lot more of a, a broader view and being a lot more open to you know, some things where you might find enjoyment. I think it's very easy to get focused in on one thing. And I think dedication has its own purpose in, in what people chase and do in life. But I've found some of the best things in life come along. And if you're so focused on doing something, you can almost miss those opportunities. So I'm a lot more open to, you know, chasing those things that can definitely bring happiness and, you know, fulfill my life now. Have you thought about the fact that you were only 22 when this happened? Are you, I don't know if happy is the right word, that it happened while you were still young, fairly young? I've never really thought too much about the timing. Um, I don't know, like a, a question I get asked a lot is like the the whole like what advice would you have for your younger self? Yeah, I was going to ask you that at the end. That's my question. Am, am I allowed, am allowed to answer now? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Because <laughs> I think it fits. <laughs> Um, I think the advice that I would give to my younger self, I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe. Like if I went back to the person that I was before, I'd tell myself the biggest cliche of all, which is you only live once. And it kind of fits hand in hand with my favorite quote, which is the fact that we all have two lives and, you know, our second one begins when we only have one. But I realized that I can share my story as, as much as I, I like and, some people will take away the fact that you you know life is short and that you you want to live it as much as possible and that's something i I wish everyone could take but you know the fact is a lot of people hear a cliche and they're like okay it's just another feel-good story and unfortunately as as we said earlier like some people will you know if you're not going to experience it from or if you're not going to learn that from someone else's experience or or a story you're probably going to learn it the the harder way which is through your own experience Mm -hmm which is not a bad thing because as humans going through those struggles is how we grow and it's how we learn. But you will learn that life is short and the fact that you'll come out the other side of that having you know, this, this newfound appreciation for life will be a good thing. Not everyone goes in that direction because you know, as humans we're all wired differently. But I think for me, if I was to go back in time and tell myself that, like I said, I probably wouldn't have believed it before. I learned it the hard way and that's something that you know, I probably going back to your original question, I'm, I'm happy that it, it did happen at that point in life. It gives me more time to enjoy it. Yeah. So you're back surfing, mm-hmm. but that wasn't enough for you. You went on and you've done a marathon. You've walked the 100K Oxfam walk. Mm-hmm. You're now preparing for a 52-kilometer paddle which is very interesting considering what they said about your lap muscle. Yes. Can you talk to us about 
that why you decided to challenge yourself with these things? Yeah. And I guess what's next for you? Yeah, I think one one big thing, you know, and I've spoken about it already about how, you know, if if I've set myself a goal like getting back to surfing and I want to put pride in the, you know, the what you do every day side of things, I started realizing that I wanted to challenge myself to the point where I would almost be in a position of failure or I wanted to tell myself that, no, I couldn't do it because I want to see how I react, especially knowing everything that I know now. And whether it be, you know, walking 100 kilometers, whether it be running a marathon or whether it be the Molokai paddle, the 52-kilometer open ocean paddle, I am definitely someone who requires that that challenge to stay sharp to give me purpose and that's that's something that is a very personal pursuit but i think it's something that a lot of people can learn something from as well um if i was just to get like i said earlier if i was just to get back in the water and surf again and become the person i was before i think there are certain things that you can learn from that but one thing that i really wanted to to focus on is putting the things that I learned throughout my recovery into these other challenges in life to see how they work. And I mean, the hundred K walk, it worked. Um, I got to a point where my, um, ITB and my right knee blew up with about 30 kilometers to go, which meant that going down any hill or stairs was, was incredibly painful, but realizing that, you know, I've put in these, you know, put in these training kilometers, I was at a stage where I was kind of saying, okay, just one foot in front of the other, even though it's for 30 kilometers, which is quite a long time. Being able to overcome that gives you such a feeling of, of ecstasy and, you know, be, crossing the finish line again was a, an emotional moment for me. Again, not only from the significance of, you know, being told that I might not walk again to being able to do something like that is personally very significant but then i think just the way that i went about the training and and the way that i prepared for it is something that other people can take from you know and hopefully apply to their their own situations whether it just be in everyday life or if it's for their own physical challenge or you know everyone's got their own things that they're working on but yeah the the paddle is the next one and i think probably the most challenging one like I said earlier, with the operation, they don't like to take the lat muscle from people who paddle or, you know, or rock climb because of the pulling motion. Um, so, so, of course, that's what you're going to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> um, paddling 52 kilometers without a lat muscle in my, in, you know, the left part of my back is definitely going to be a challenge. Is it completely gone or is you completely yeah. gone? Yeah. So there's, oh, wow. there's other okay. muscles that step in and do a similar job. And like we said earlier, the way that the body adapts is, is yeah, incredible. pretty incredible. Um, I am pretty lopsided in, in my back and can get some pain from time to time because of that. But I think it just brings together a lot of different parts of my story as well. There's, you know, the, the fact that I don't have the lat. There's the fact that it's, you know, the ocean um, in, you know, in that sort of environment. There's the challenge. There's so many parts of that that I think it's it's definitely my favorite out of out of all the challenges that I've done so far. And just doing the training up and down the coast here has been amazing. You know, we do what's called downwinders. So you go pretty far off the shore and then you just go in the direction of the wind um, until you find a bit of coastline again. So you can do, you know, 20 or so Ks before you hit um, another bit of coastline and, you 
just seeing the coast from that angle is is really unique and something that I haven't really experienced before. So not only is it the physical challenge, but I've actually really enjoyed being able just to be out in the ocean and do all of that as well. In terms of that, I did want to ask you about sharks mm. now, being out in the ocean. How difficult was that for you to get back into the ocean in terms of sharks? Like, did you, when you were saying how vivid your memories are and you're talking about it, it's almost like I can see that you're like back there experiencing what happened. Mm. Was it difficult for you? Um, I mean, the chance of you getting attacked a second time yeah. is pretty slim. But, yeah. you know, knowing that it has happened before. Mm. Well, it's, I think, I'd like to say I'm a pretty rational person. Um, and you say, you know, getting attacked by a shark two times, you know, the, the odds are probably going to be, you know, very, very far against you. I, I have heard of it happening to one guy um, in South Australia. Oh. But he ended up dying in a car crash. So oh, no. it's it's one of those oh. things that um you know, the the rational part of me says that there's no reason to be scared, but as humans we're not really always the most rational creatures. So mm. you know, it again, it's always in, in the back of my mind. I'll always have that respect. And I think for me now it's more sort of acting on if I feel uncomfortable or if I'm surfing later, you know, later in the afternoon, just kind of listening to myself and saying it's, I don't have anything to prove by saying, oh, I stayed out there when I, you know, when I was yeah. feeling scared. I'm, I'm more than happy just to, to go in. I think that's something that was always a part of me, but now I think I've just developed as, as a human and, you know, I have mm. a, probably less pride, but in a good way like I, I i don't take pride in saying that you know i, I stayed out you know until until yeah. dark like i i'm more than happy just to paddle in and you know again it, part of it's because i was always like okay i want to stay out till dark because everyone else goes in and i can get more waves for me and you know yeah. like i said before taking that part of, that selfish part of surfing out um means that you know i i can focus on you know well, I can go home and enjoy dinner like yeah. <laughs> there's, there's yeah. di different things to focus on but yeah it was I think that part of me has probably developed as as time's gone on. I think early on I was definitely telling myself that, you know, there's no reason to be afraid. Let's just get out in the water and, and do it. And I think that was a, a big thing where I was more focused on – I think I was more afraid of not being able to perform surfing than I was of sharks at that point. Wow. Are you a perfectionist? Probably depends on on what, what it you, is. What, yeah, it, it depends on what it is. It depends on, I think, how much um, how much care I have for it. I don't care about making the bed perfectly in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but if I've got, I think if I've got certain things in my life that I I genuinely really care about, then I'll do everything I can to make sure that I've done the best job at it. Yeah. So. Next thing after your paddle is going to be finishing your documentary. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the the paddle is actually the final part of the documentary. You know, I always come back to why have I waited, you know, six years after the attack to make a documentary. And a big part of that is I always felt like my story wasn't done. And I still don't think it is. But being able to have the paddle as kind of the last chapter of, of the documentary 
is a really good way, I think, to, to finish it. Like I said, it has a lot of that great symbolism with being in the ocean, not having a lat, um, that physical challenge. And that's something I really wanted to, to include in the documentary. But, you know, a lot of people, even early on, is, you know, you should write a book, you should do, you, know, you should do this, you should do that. And I've always been really interested in, in film um, and photography. And I'm lucky that one of my really good friends, Sam Tolhurst, um, I actually reached out to him to make sort of like a five minute sort of context giving clip that I could play before I do some of my talks. And we, we did that. And as soon as we put it together, we're like, no, there's, there's more to this story. And as I kind of explored it a little bit more, I realized this is for me probably a little bit better than writing the book because it allows me to combine things that I love um, in, in filming. But the idea of the documentary is to provide my story from not only my perspective but parts of my story that i can't tell so you know having joel and aggie's perspective you know when when they were on the beach having my parents perspective you know what it's like to receive that call and and you know what what the recovery was like for them and and kind of tying everything together it allows me to you know get to a point where i can say here's here's my story in a nutshell there's always going to be more pages to it there's always going to be more chapters but it's at a point now where i think if i can complete the paddle that's a story i'm really proud to you know tell my grandkids and and things like that so uh, it was really important to make sure it had a lot of meaning not only for the viewer but for for me as well and i think a good way to to demonstrate the meaning of it is through the title so it's called pyrophytic which for a lot of people is a, a tongue twister and I have to explain the title every single time I, I say it, but I'm totally okay with it because I love the meaning. Mm-hmm. In Australia, we have many pyrophytic species of plants, uh, which are plants that require fire in order to germinate and regrow. So it's obviously a, a beautiful metaphor for, for my story, you know, the shark attack being the fire, but the end result is the fact that I have been able to, you know, germinate regrow flower prosper all of those those um you know beautiful descriptive words and i think when you know when i look at my story like that it really does emphasize the fact that it doesn't matter what happened to you but it is really about what happens afterwards it's that regrowth part of the the pyrophytic species of plant which is um you know holds a lot of meaning when do you think this is going to come out and how can people find out about it um, we'll be finishing it late this year, so hopefully release it October, November. The paddle itself is in July in Hawaii, so after that we'll be able to put everything together. I would say stay tuned for how to watch it because we're still working that out as as we go. But we we hope it's something that you know there's there's no real stories like this that are out there, so we hope we can put it out on a platform where a lot of people can see it and I suppose a lot of people think of like yeah your Netflix or your Amazon Primes or whatever but for me it's mostly about just making sure that you know as many people as possible see it so I have the opportunity to you know have that impact on hopefully one person's life I'm sure a lot more than one person (laughs) (laughs) fingers crossed Um, I will pop your details in the show notes too but do you want to just tell people how they can find you and find out about the film yeah definitely um I'm probably most active on social media on Instagram. 
my Instagram's just Brett Canellan. The film itself has an Instagram page, which you can follow all the behind the scenes and, and all of that. It's just pyrophytic film. Other than that, if you want to find out more information, as Jess did, you can jump on my website, um, which is just www.brettcanellan.com. So yeah, that, that has email and stuff if you wanted to reach out and had any questions or yeah, wanted to have a chat. You have such an incredible story, but you're also such an incredible person and I could just keep talking to you all day. <laughs> what you've done, how you've grown is just amazing from that one in- instance that happened. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story today. Do you have anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap up? I mean, first of all, thanks for thanks for reaching out. Thanks for, for having me. I think, yeah, I, w- I will probably finish with this because... I think a lot of people, when it comes to hearing, you know, other people's stories, and I always say you don't have to look far for an incredible or an inspiring story. Everybody has their own story and everyone has their own things that you can learn from it. One thing that I've definitely noticed is that everyone's always interested in knowing about these stories, but often a lot of people are afraid to ask about them. So whether that be reaching out and asking questions that someone might have or, you know, asking someone on a podcast, I think it's a really good good example. The fact that you reached out and asked me to come on the podcast is something that I think all people should do. We should be curious when it comes to these stories. I think something that we've almost in a way lost as as humans because, you know, we feel so connected through social media and, and everything these days is the fact that stories – you know, aren't something that it's just to be consumed on an Instagram feed where it's, you know, you scroll past it and that's all it is. Stories are something that we've shared for, you know, as long as we've been human beings. And I think having a platform like you do sharing other people's stories, I know for myself how empowering it is to be able to share my story and how that can impact other people. I'm sure you've done the same, but empowering other people to share their own stories is is amazing. I would encourage a lot of people to, you know, continue these conversations in whatever way, whether it's through, you know, podcast or, you know, getting together and having a chat. Um, I, th- I just think there's so much value in, in sharing stories and hearing other people's stories. And I think that's something that it definitely inspires me, you know, every, every day that I hear something amazing. And coming from someone who, like you said before, was shy, didn't really talk much <laughs> to coming out and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) And you took my last question. You've already answered that. So so I got nothing else. (laughs) (laughs) You can can edit that in at the end if you like. (laughs) Thank you so much, Brett. Thanks, Jess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspirational Tales. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could please share it with your family and friends so that we can inspire more people. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please don't forget to leave us a rating or a view and make sure that you have subscribed or followed the podcast on whichever platform that you are listening to it on so that you can stay up to date as new episodes are released. Thanks again and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Inspirational Tales.